C.S. Lewis wrote, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, a vice which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in somebody else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. And then, of course, he says what it is. It's pride, conceit. He goes on to say that all the other sins are mere flea bites in comparison. And, and I don't know, I think there's lots of biblical evidence to back that up. Uh, you got Lucifer who fell because of pride. That's where evil came from. Then you got the fall of mankind to guard Eden. They wanted to be like God. I think that has to do with pride. Fact is, most of the problems you see with people in the Bible have to do with pride. And I think most of the problems we have today have to do with pride. Proverbs 29, 23 reads, A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. I mean, I know we hate to admit this, but even the, the meekest Christians have problems with ego once in a while. We have this constant battle between humility and pride, and it just seems to me like it intensifies around the Christmas season. Did you see any of that at your house last week? It just seems to intensify. Which, which uh, house, which in-laws the newlywed couple going to go to first? You know, which, which child uh, of the single parents, which, which household do they go to on Christmas morning? Who gave the gift that was appreciated most Christmas morning? Who, who got the most gifts? Who got the biggest gift? Who got invited to the biggest party? Who got the most attention when everybody got? Whose house was the best decorated? Which lap did the kid sit on, the, the baby, on Christmas Eve? And that's how that goes. It just seems to intensify. That's how we get. Uh, a couple of years ago, Christy Webster brought some sugar cookies. She brings them every year uh, for Christmas. And it was it was exceptional batch of sugar cookies. In fact, I told her some of the best sugar cookies I had ever tasted. And uh, she knew what that meant. Because listen to me carefully. I'm not your average, everyday sugar cookie eater. I'm a professional. Was, was I talking about pride? Anyway, <laughs> so I told Christy about it. And I think it went to her head. Because then she made some more cookies and brought them in. And she made some ginger cookies. Well, here's the thing about our staff. We're, we're probably too close we watch out for each other, and anytime somebody's getting out of hand, we nip it in the bud. So Lori said, we're going to bring her down a notch. So Lori put a dead mouse on her desk, and I'm telling you, if I could find a video, I looked all week for it, you would just scream with laughter. But it calmed her down. She went from a sugar cookie baking egomaniac to a very humble office worker, just like that. She was humble. <laughs> That's what we all want to be. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at the Christmas story again. We're not out of December yet. I want to look at the same passage we looked at last week, chapter 2 of Matthew, because I had a lot to say last week and I didn't get it all said. And I want to look at the same two characters. I want to look at King Herod and the Magi. And I want us to see the pride in King Herod and the humility in these wise men. And I think if we look at it, we can see some of it in ourselves and maybe nip it in the bud. Verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. So here's the first thing this morning. We're going to look at the humility of the wise men. And the first thing we're going to look at there is that these wise men were very intelligent and still very teachable. And that's humility. Now we determined last week that we know for sure that they didn't come from Kentucky because... There's never been three wise men in Kentucky at the same time, ha, ha, ha. But the truth is, we really don't know where these guys came from, and we don't know how many of them there were. There could have been more than three. We don't know what they actually saw in the sky, 
And we don't know really how long it took them to get there. Here's one thing we do know for sure. These guys were unbelievable astronomers. I mean, they were wise well beyond their years. They knew about the stars. They even knew how to get God's will out of the stars. And that space has always fascinated me anyway. Last Tuesday night, you probably saw this. They deemed it the Christmas star. It's not been here in 800 years. It's not coming back for 80. And here's what happened. Saturn and Jupiter were so close together. And, of course, they don't have any natural light. The sun, when the sun set, hit them just right. And they lit up in the southwest sky. In fact, Angie and I jumped in a car. Rob had already called us, went, and we, we drove down to Highway 48 and got up in the top parking lot of the Salem Baptist Church. They didn't even kick me out. And we watched this thing. It was gorgeous, fascinating to me to see that. Dr. Craig Chester, years ago, was president of Monterey Institute for Research in Astronomy, and he wrote an amazing article about the Bethlehem star. And, and I'm going to admit to you up front, I found this in a Bob Russell sermon 20 years ago, but it fascinated me then. I told Ashley I was going to look it up, and I did because it still fascinates me today. Here's what he says. With computers, we can now reverse the movement of the stars and know with exact certainty where the stars were located at the time of birth of Christ. And then he starts talking about these unbelievable phenomena, these things that happened in the year 2 B.C. and 3 B.C. And, of course, we know our calendars could be off as much as three years. He says, in September of 3 B.C., Jupiter, the planet that represents kingship, came into conjunction with Regales, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo, which is associated with the Lion of Judah. So the royal planet approached the royal star in the royal constellation representing Israel, and the conjunction between Jupiter and Regales was repeated not once but twice in February and May of 2 B.C. Now stay with me, it's worth it, I tr trust me. He writes, in June of 2 B.C., Jupiter and Venus, the two brightest objects in the sky other than the sun and the moon, experienced an even closer encounter when their disks appeared to touch. To the naked eye, he says, they became a single object above the setting sun. This exceptionally rare spectacle could not have been missed by the Magi. Now listen, I understand. We know that God said, uh, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so God would have absolutely no problem creating a Bethlehem star. He created them all anyway. But this is intriguing to me. Because the Bible says before creation even began, uh, Jesus and God had already sat down and worked out the redemption plan. The Bible says in the fullness of time, Christ came to the planet. In, in perfect time in, our, in human history, when the hub of civilization was all in the same place, that's when Christ came. Uh, and so it's just intriguing to me to think that maybe centuries in advance, God had moved the stars around to announce the coming of Jesus. Now, somebody might say, well, what in this passage later, Matthew says, the star went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. It stopped. Listen to what Dr. Chester says. A planet normally moves eastward through the stars, but regularly will exhibit a retrograde loop, which means it appears to slow down and come to a full stop. And we do know for certain, he says, that Jupiter performed a retrograde loop in 2 B.C. Fascinating. One way or another, these guys were absolutely thrilled that the star st stopped over Bethlehem, which was the King David's uh, hometown, which was just prophesied thousands of years before. And my point is, one way or another, whether this was a special star created by God or just the moving around of the stars he'd already created, my point is these guys were not pompous, arrogant, intelligent men. They were still ready to learn. They were teachable. We, we can learn from that. Uh, 23 years ago, I joined a preacher's group here in Bloomington. Some of you remember we preached the same sermon every week. 
And in that group was Tom Ellsworth from Sherwood Oaks, Scotty Richman from Ellsville, at the time was running about 500, um, and then Henry Mann from Little Cincinnati. And so we had these proven veteran preachers of large church, and then me, a fuzzy-faced preacher from out in the country someplace. And the first time we met, I was so intimidated. I surrendered. I didn't even talk. Can you imagine me not talking? And Tom Ellsworth, the first thing Tom said to me was, uh, man, it's so good to get some fresh perspective. We're so glad you're here, Jim Kane. We're ready to learn. I said, wait, what? You're going to learn from me? This is one of the most successful preachers in our brotherhood telling me he's ready to learn. That's a humble characteristic, a teachable spirit. It's amazing. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but humility brings wisdom. Stay teachable. Another indication of these guys' humility is even though they were very wealthy, they were still spiritually sensitive, and that's tough to do. We talked about this a lot. There's a, there's a, a lot of a bad opportunity that comes with, become, with being the wealthiest nation the world's ever seen. That's ours. It, it's hard on us spiritually. It's hard on us to stay focused because we have so much. We've talked so much about that. And, and uh, influence can make it hard on anybody because more money uh, comes with more intense temptations. And you can pick any subject. Just, just pick coming to church on Sunday mornings. I, I mean, you, you find yourself all of a sudden missing because you're working so hard to make money, or you miss because you're sleeping in because you've been working so hard to make money, or you're traveling because you've made a lot of money and you can travel now. And it just keeps going. It seems like sometimes when we have a lot of money, we even get the illusion of self-sufficiency. We get to the point where we get this crazy idea that we don't need anybody or anybody or anything. And sometimes we even think we don't need God. It's nuts what money can do to us. I remember the first time that I saw Patrick Reed, a professional golfer. Uh, after he'd won his third tournament, and I watched him interviewed. I wasn't real impressed. But anyway, uh, he's, he was going on and on about how he thought at this point in his life he should be mentioned with the top five golfers in the world. And I thought, are you kidding me? He won a couple of tournaments and got a little money. It went to his head. And by the way, it was two and a half years before he won again. Psalm 49.20 reads, A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. And even though these wise men were very wealthy, they maintained a spiritual hunger. And that's a good lesson for us, living in the wealthiest country the world's ever known, to stay teachable and humble. Another indication of their humility is how interested they were in other people, in foreign affairs. I mean, they're interested. This is an advanced culture interested in the kingship of Israel. And you've got to remember, in this time in history, Israel was a second-rate nation under subjection to Rome, and these guys were still interested with them. And I think another thing that happens to us living in this affluent culture is we forget that there are third-world nations out there. You know, we talk about a first-world problem. And that's kind of funny, cotton isn't. I think all of us should have to visit a third world nation one time. The commercials come on, we see those starving babies, or worse. And we either ignore them or we go out to the kitchen to get a snack. It's over when we get back. But if you'd pay attention and see some of the stuff that's going on around us, bring tears to your eyes. These people are loved by God and the Magi were interested. Another indication of their humility is they were men and still they stopped and asked for directions. That's huge. That's an ego thing right there, you know. They didn't have GPS. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have an atlas map. They said, hey, we saw the star. We know it's a sign. Could you tell us where it is and how to get there? That's hard on us. I don't think you women understand. It's an ego issue. 
When you have to ask directions, you're actually going up to somebody and admitting they know something you don't, and that's hard on people. Now, we laugh at Aaron all the time in our house, and he takes it, but he's got it coming most of the time. But anyway, last month, he, he likes to think he knows his way around Disney because he's been there a few times, but he really doesn't know his way around Disney. He gets lost all the time. And so he's taken Scott and I and the boys to go get some donuts four miles away. And we started, and I said, hey, Aaron, because I've been there a few times, too. I said, Aaron, how come we're going this way? He said, that's the best way to go. That's the way I always go. Forty-five minutes later, four miles, no traffic issues at all. So it's just hard to admit sometimes that somebody knows a little better than you do the direction to go. Somebody asked uh, Daniel Boone one time, have you ever been lost? He said, no, nah, I've never been lost. I will admit I've been a mite confused a day or two uh, once in a while. But, uh, yeah, somebody said, you know what would happen if there had been three wise women? instead of three wise men. They would have stopped and asked directions. They would have got there on time. They would have helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, and given practical gifts. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. See the smirks on their faces? This is feminist pride I'm talking about. You need to get <laughs> Number five, the wise men were mature adults, and they still didn't have any problem worshiping a child. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Hey, it's hard to bow down and worship anybody. Even, even a king. But they're worshiping a baby. And, and not just a baby uh, of royal lineage, but a baby from, you know, poverty-stricken teenagers. And not in a large city either, in a, in a small town, and not even in a palace. They were in a very modest home. This took a lot of humility. And I think it's also good to notice that a significant part of their worship was gift-giving. The Bible said when they worship him, they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I think sometimes if we're not careful, we get this idea that when we come to worship Jesus, what we're doing is coming to sing a little and to pray a little and to take communion and listen to a good sermon, something like that. But there's a whole lot more to worship than that. In fact, the first mention of worship in the Bible happened when Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him. Remember he said, we're going up on the mountain to worship God. And the first mention of worship in the New Testament is right here when they opened up their gifts and gave them to Jesus. So, it's pretty clear that genuine worship involves giving something to God. And it's certainly not because He needs it. I mean, are you kidding me? It's our expression of thanks to Him. First Chronicles 16, 29 reads, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. So, genuine worship from us involves us acknowledging that God is the giver of all good gifts and expressing our thanks back to him. Got to take a quick minute now and look at the ego uh, problem of King Herod. This won't take near as long. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this about the kingship, he was disturbed. Now, question, why would that disturb him about a Jewish king? You know, we talked about it last week. It certainly wasn't because he was worried about the people, because he was bad to the people. He didn't treat them good anyway. And we know for sure it wasn't because he was afraid, well, this meant one of his sons weren't going to inherit the throne because he killed every kid of his he thought was going to. Remember we said last week, Augustus said it was safer to be one of his pigs than it was to be one of his kids. So what is it? Well, number one, pride's always competitive. I mean, it always is. That's the way pride, this was a, an approach on his power. Listen, when we get our self-worth from our ego, accomplishing something's not enough. We want to accomplish it better than anybody else. That's what pride will do to you. In the fairy tale Snow White, 
I remember the queen, when she'd go to the mirror and say, who's the fairest of them all? She was fine as long as it was her. But one time the mirror said Snow White was fairer than her, and the queen, who, by the way, was still just as attractive as she was, was ready to take her out, kill the competition. And by the way, if you'd raised three daughters and had nine grandkids, I wouldn't have had to explain that to you. You'd already known about it. But this is Herod. He couldn't tolerate even the thought of another king. He was king by golly. Nobody else was going to do that. And, and, you know, when you think about that, that's pretty silly, too, because all the commentaries I read agree that Herod by this time was 60, 70 years old. And so even if the king was born, it'd take 20 or 30 years for that to happen, he'd be 80, 90, 100 years old. He didn't have a thing to worry about. But this kind of pride eats you alive. Number two, pride most of the time is deceptive. It'll lie to you, Barney. I mean, it just will. Verse 4, Herod called together uh, all the chief's people and chief priests, teachers of law, He asked him where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets wrote. And in verse 7, he said, hey, hey, I want you to go find out where the baby's born. Let me know so I can go worship too. Come on, man. He's a liar, and we know that. It's easy to see the difference. Humble people, when they make a mistake or they get caught in a mistake, they say, hey, my bad. I, I goofed. My fault. Sorry, man. I admit it. I'll take it. Proud people? They can't ever admit when they're wrong. Not in an argument, not in a discussion, not, not in anything they've done. They always got to fake it because they, they lose some of their image, some of their power. I went up to uh, IU School of Dentistry about eight years ago and got some work done. I'll, t- I'll do a sermon on cheapskate later. But anyway, I don't have dental insurance, and they need to practice, so I went up there. And it wasn't a bad experience. I had to make several trips. And the first time I went up there, I didn't, kinda, I didn't really know where I was going, so... I was trying to find a place to park. I was running a little late, and I'm looking around a little bit. And I finally got in, and I got on the elevator, and I'm kind of huffing and puffing. There was about nine people on the elevator. And they, the guy said, what floor? And I said, number two, please. So he pushed it. And I looked when he pushed it, and above the numbers, my floor was number three. So when we got to, to number two, the door opened, and they all looked at me. Well, I wasn't going to admit I'd made a mistake, so I just got right off the thing, walked down the hall like I knew I was doing, and I walked around the corner to the stairs and ran up to the third floor, and when I walked around the corner, it opened up, and there was all those people. <laughs> Man, I felt like an idiot. <laughs> you know, pride does that to you. It, it causes you to wear a mask. And, and it's like we talked about last week. That's why so many of us so many times act one way in here with this group of people. In a whole different way out there with another group of people. It's pride. Herod faked it. He pretended to be spiritual. He manipulated the situation. Go find the Messiah and come back and tell me so I can worship him too. And then, of course, God warned the Magi in a dream to go another way and not stop back by there again. Which is another indication of humility, by the way. When you get a word from God, either in your prayer time or your devotion time, you'll be obedient to that. That's being humble. Verse 16. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. And and we won't talk a whole lot about that because we talked about it last week, but this is brutal. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that, killing babies. Can you imagine the pain and the wailing and the horror going on? Listen to me, that's what pride does. When it gets into us, it gets us to a place where we're so self-centered that we don't care what it means to the people around us. And we can destroy families and ministries and innocent bystanders at work. C.S. Lewis says, Pride is spiritual cancer that eats up every possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. 
We don't want this in our life. So, we need to take communion. What's the one thing that we learned from this this morning that we can take home with us? Be humble. I mean, just be humble. Listen, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift, not by works that anyone should boast. I mean, every one of us in here, can I just be frank, would be on a one-way road to hell today without Jesus Christ. What in the world do we have to be proud of anyway? Humble yourselves, the Bible says. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So, just be humble during the holidays. Believe in the Christmas message. We talked about this two or three weeks ago. Just believe in the Christmas message. It takes a lot of humility because it takes a lot of faith. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here. We got angels coming out of nowhere. We got the virgin birth and the incarnation and, uh, you know, just miracle after miracle. And you don't have to commit intellectual suicide, but you do have to crucify intellectual pride because you can't prove any of this. None of it. This is a walk of faith. And I got to tell you something. I never in my life, never in my life have I seen a time in our country where we need some faith. Never a time in my life have I seen a time in our country where we need the truth. We don't have truth anywhere. I, I mean, I've told you this before. I, I don't care if you're watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, reading the Wall Street Journal, the Herald Times, or the Indianapolis Star. I don't care where you're finding your stuff on the Internet. I don't care if you go to the CDC or, or the Monroe Hospital. You can't find the truth. Not today. Too much politics too much personal agendas, too much money. There's only one place to find the truth. And we've had it all along. And that's in the Word of God. And we need to be sharing it. And that takes humility. It takes a, a smart group of people who have Google now and have knowledge right at our fingertips to actually be able to say humbly, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We have the truth. On the last night in the upper room, Jesus took a loaf of bread, broke it, blessed it, said, this is, this is my body broken for you. When you get together and you take this, I want you to remember me because this is true and it's real. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. It's poured out for you. When you get together and drink this, I want you to remember me because this is true. Have a happy, humble holiday season and give tribute and grace to Jesus Christ.